Thank you. That's a little uh, brief introduction to uh, who I am. Unfortunately, lots of times in introductions, you don't get a chance to hear the passion of the individual. And one of my passions and one of the particular aspects of my ministry here, at least how I see it, is somehow to bring to my students an appreciation and love for the Old Testament. I think that one of the difficulties we have in our Christian church today is that uh, we really focus in on and uh, the New Testament and oftentimes to the exclusion of the Old. And one of, my th- one of the aspects of my courses whenever I teach in the Old Testament is to try to integrate our Christian New Testament thinking with the other three-fourths of our scriptures. And today what I'd like to do, instead of uh, trying to integrate um, Leviticus and the ceremonial laws or the book of Amos or some real obscure part of the Old Testament, although I think it is part of our Christian experience, I thought I'd choose something a little more, um, a little simpler, that is a Christian reading of the Psalms. And that's what I want to address to today with you. The book of Psalms, as we've sung, is uh, one of those books that uh, we know and love and we cherish. Sometimes when you purchase a New Testament, you'll find even the book of Psalms appended to the end of the the New Testament. So the book of Psalms is part of our own Christian experience. And I know is uh, from my own experience, and I'm sure it's the same with you, that the book of Psalms is one part of the Old Testament where the pages are um, messy from our fingers thumbing through them so often. So what I want to do today with you is to crystallize your thinking on how we read the Psalms and try to explain why we love them so much. What is it about the Psalms that uh, draws us to them? Let me give you some background information on this idea of a Christian reading of the Psalms. There are three factors, I think, that influence our reading of the Psalms. The first factor is that when we read the Psalms, they are written in what I call a generic fashion. That is, many of the Psalms don't even have an author. Many of the Psalms don't don't have any historical information about the uh, setting, the time, the place, etc. Another factor in this generic idea of the Psalms is that in the Psalms you read about these enemies all the way throughout the book. And frankly, we have no idea who they are for the most part. Uh, They're called the enemies, the adversary, uh, those who hate me. And there's very little detail, specific detail, about who these enemies are. That is, the Psalms come to us in a very generic fashion. The second factor that I think influences our reading of the Psalms is the post-exilic situation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think with me, uh, for those of you who've had Old Testament survey. Joshua brings the children of Israel into the land. They settle down for a number of years until God provides them with a king. King David establishes his monarchy. Solomon glorifies it, and they have this great golden age of the monarchy. After Solomon comes the split of the monarchy into the northern and southern kingdoms, and these two kingdoms go their way and commit their sins and deny the word, And as a result of that, both nations are taken away into exile. Now, most of the psalms that we read were written in this glory age of the monarchy. So how did this post-exilic, this exile where the 
children of Israel went into exile where there was no king, no kingdom, no autonomy. Uh, they were under the authority of the Gentiles from this time forward. How did that affect the reading of the Psalms? And what it does, it makes the Psalms a prophetic book. Because now we read the Psalms and we see this king portrayed in the book of Psalms. This great king and this glorious kingdom portrayed in the book of Psalms. And the children of Israel, because they are in this post-exilic situation without a king, without the glory that the Psalms portray, without the great blessings in operation, the Psalms become a prophetic and predictive book. And this leads me to the third factor of our reading of the Psalms, and it's related to this, it's the coming of Christ. When Jesus came, he himself said that the Psalms point to him. And if you read through the, Old, uh, the New Testament, you'll see how often the apostles use the Psalms in the New Testament letters, and their usage of the Psalms indicates to us that they view the Psalms as predictive and messianic. So there's three factors. The psalm comes, comes to us in a generic fashion. The second factor is the post-exilic situation where the kingdom was gone, the king was gone, the uh, glory of the kingdom was gone, and it, it, it forced the people to read these psalms predictively and prophetically. And third of all, the coming of Christ. Jesus himself tells us that the psalms are all about himself, and the apostles themselves recognize the prophetic flavor of the Psalms as well as the messianic flavor of the Psalms. All right. So how do we read the Psalms? What's the, what's the Christian reading of the Psalms? Well, first of all, we read them ideally. That is, we read the Psalms from the perspective of the original author. The original author has this experience and he portrays his experience in an ideal or generic way. Second of all, we read the Psalms messianically. All the Psalms point to the, to the Messiah. And I should say this again. All the Psalms point to the Messiah. Jesus says the Psalms are all about me. Every single Psalm from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 relate to either the person of Christ or to the work of Christ. Let's take, for example, the three Psalms we sung this morning. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Uh, that's true of the original author. That is definitely true of our Lord. That as he walked on this earth, the word of God was central in his life. The second psalm, uh, the second song we sung today dealt with the love of the temple. And Psalm 84 is all about the love and the, uh, the zeal for the temple. And if you think about Jesus' own words where he says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And the third psalm that we sung today was Psalm 5. Give here to my words, O God, and my signs. And we know that Jesus himself certainly could have said those words as he lived his three and a half years suffering on our behalf. The third aspect of the Psalms, and this is the area that I want to deal with today, is, and I'll, I'll coin a term which you haven't heard before, but maybe you'll remember it this way. Um, we read the Psalms endomessianically. And that's a, a fancy way for saying we read the Psalms in Christ. What do I mean by that? We find ourselves in the Psalms because we are in Christ. All the Psalms point to Christ, to his person or work. Since we, by faith, are in Christ, we read the Psalms for ourselves. And this is the reason why 
Thy word is a lamp unto our feet is all about us. We sing those songs and praise because we are in Christ. Jesus could say those words. We are in Christ. We sing those words. We have an adoration for the worship of God and a zeal for the worship of God because Christ does. And since we are in Christ, we have his heart. We sing, give ear to my words, O Lord, because we go through the same sufferings and trials that our Lord had. And so we read the Psalms not only messianically, as prophetically, predictively, but we read the Psalms endo-messianically. And that's just a silly way to say that since we are in Christ and our union with Christ, his life is typical of our lives. Let me give you just a... Uh, a passage from scripture, John 15, that I think illustrates this point of this endomessianic nature of the Psalms. John 15, verses 18 through 25. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. And this is the key verse. They hated me without cause. So, Jesus takes this verse out of Psalm 69, hating himself without cause. He first of all applies it to himself. But I wanted to read this passage because the teaching of Jesus is this. Since we are in Christ, because the world hates Christ, they will hate you. And we read the Psalms endo-messianically. We read them because since we are in Christ... We find ourselves there. Now, what I want to deal with today is uh, one major theme in the Psalms. Uh, there are a number of themes, the glory of the kingdom, the glory of the king, the, uh, the greatness of God, the greatness of his word. But I want to deal with one particular uh, aspect of the Psalms today. And that is a major aspect that the Psalms teach about our Lord and the Messiah is this. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, indicates that as the prophets of old wrote their writings, it says that Christ was in them predicting his sufferings and the glories to follow. And what 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says is, is that a major aspect of the scriptures is that Christ predicts his sufferings and the glories to follow. And this is a major theme in the book of Psalms. So let me summarize, therefore, in this introduction, why we love the Psalms so much. What is this Christian reading of the Psalms? Why, do we, uh, why are we drawn to the Psalms so much? And my answer to that question is this. We love the Psalms because our life in Christ is reflected there. Our life in Christ is sharing in the sufferings. Let me show you how the New Testament uh, makes us a major theme. And I will just read these verses to give you an idea. 
In Philippians 3.10, Paul says, To know him and the power of his resurrection, that's the glory part, and the fellowship or the sharing of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 2 Corinthians 1.5, Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And the last one, which I think is, which puts it all together, is Romans 8.17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this is just a smattering of New Testament passages which indicate that the New Testament writers, Jesus himself, see our Christian experience as the sufferings of Christ with the glories to follow. What I'd like to do in the rest of our time together is take a look at Psalm 22. And I've chosen Psalm 22 to illustrate this Christian reading of the Psalms. And the reason why I've chosen Psalm 22 is because normally we read this Psalm only messianically. And what I'm saying to you today is that the Psalms, all the Psalms, are for us because we can read them endomessianically. That, we, that is, we can read them because we are in Christ. So I thought this would be an appropriate uh, Psalm to use in order to illustrate our point today. Take a look at Psalm 22. In the first five verses, the psalmist, who in this case is David, addresses himself to God. Let's take a look at the first five verses. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet thou art holy, O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered, and thee they trusted and were not disappointed. The psalmist is addressing God because he doesn't understand how God in the past was so, God in the past so often delivered the psalmist, in this case David, and in this situation there is no deliverance that he can see. And he's confused. First of all, he calls him my God, so it's, there's a relationship established between the psalmist and God. And he says, why have you forsaken me? You've always been there throughout my whole life. You've always been there to deliver me and save me. But now, verse 1 says, my deliverance is way far away and I can't see it. And I'm confused because if you take a look at verse 4 and 5, I know that not only in my own life... Have you been there? Have you been there to deliver me and save me? But if I think about my spiritual forefathers, verses 4 and 5, in thee our fathers trusted and you did deliver them. That is, Lord, this has been the experience of 
all the people of God through all generations. They suffer in the, uh, they share in the sufferings of Christ. They cry out to God and God delivers. God, you've done this in the past with my spiritual forefathers. You've done this in my own life, but now I can't see my deliverance. He says in verse 3, I know you're holy. And here, the holiness of God that the psalmist is talking about is the holiness of God displayed in deliverance. That is, God displays his majesty and his holiness as he delivers his people. For example, take a look at the Red Sea. When God split the waters of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went through on dry land. And as the Egyptians came and chasing them, God put the waters back. And in Exodus 15, Moses sings a song of praise. It's called the Song of Moses. He sings a song to praise to God for his majesty and his awesomeness. The holiness of God is displayed in his acts of deliverance. Something about Hebrew poetry is that you have, in a verse, you have two lines that virtually say the same thing. There's parallelism here. So if you take a look at verse 3, it says, Yet thou art holy... O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Well, what does Israel praise God for? Well, verse 4 and 5, his deliverances. So here he says, God, you are holy. God, I know you're holy because I've seen your holiness displayed in the acts of deliverances in in the life and work of your people. Israel praises God for their for their acts of salvation from God. So the psalmist is confused. You've been with me my whole life. You've always delivered me. But now I can only see my troubles. I should add here as a footnote that a very predominant theme in this psalm is the theme of the Emmanuel idea. The theme of the God is with us. Throughout this whole psalm, the whole idea of this psalm is that God is with his people. Take a look at the uh, Exodus generation. They come out of the Red Sea and they come to Sinai and the Lord gives Moses the covenant and they build the tabernacle and as the final result of building the tabernacle God comes to dwell in the midst of his people God is with his people and they move through the land he gives them victories and blessings take a look at uh, Joseph who is persecuted by his brother sold into slavery and throughout the Joseph narrative we We see this refrain again and again, and God was with Joseph to deliver him. We take a look at Ezra, the scribe and the priest, who wanted to go back into the land in obedience to the word of God and reestablish the word of God in the land. And it says through all Ezra's trials and tribulations, getting back to the land, it says God was with us. Same holds true for Nehemiah when Nehemiah is building the wall and all the opposition of the peoples around them. Now the peoples around them tried to stop the building of the walls of Nehemiah. And throughout the book of Nehemiah it says, and God was with us. God is with us to deliver us from the sufferings and trials and tribulations that we experience by virtue of our association with the Holy One, His Messiah. So the psalmist calls out to God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are the words of Christ on the cross. We know this. But today I want to take a look at this for us. As we live our lives in our union with Christ. 
there will be those times where we will only see the trouble, the sufferings. We will not see the holiness of God. We will not remember the great acts of God. We will feel and experience forsaken by God because we will be enveloped, uh, baptized as it were, immersed in our troubles. Verses 6 through 8, the psalmist gives us a brief overview of his sufferings. And this is the situation of sufferings themselves. He says, but I am a worm. As my fathers, they were spiritual men and you delivered them. But I am a worm because the people around me despise me. They hate me. They reject me. They make me feel like less than a man, like dirt itself. I am a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And what the psalmist is saying is these enemies of mine are saying, God's not going to deliver you. He's not going to do that. You aren't his special anointed one. You aren't his special person. It's something Similar to Hezekiah, when Hezekiah is uh, in the city of Jerusalem and the Assyrian army comes against the southern kingdom of Judah and literally wipes out the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah stands in the city and says, we will trust the Lord, he will deliver us. And all the people responded to Hezekiah and his leadership. And the Assyrian king sent his messengers to speak at the wall of the city of Jerusalem saying, ha! You think God is going to deliver you? You've got another thing coming. The king of Assyria has conquered all these cities and all the gods of the people in the ancient world. Who, what makes you think that your God is going to deliver you? And this is exactly what's going on here. This individual, the psalmist, experiences the attacks of the enemy. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to break his faith and trust in the Holy One of God. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This is mockery. They're saying, oh, you call yourself a child of God, a special one of God. What makes you think that God's going to deliver you? I think at times we also have those kinds of doubts, thinking and doubting the fact that God could and would and want to deliver us out of our trials and tribulations. The psalmist begins to move in a different direction now in verses 9 and 10. Up to this point, the psalmist has looked only at his situation. He is immersed in it. Take a look at verse 9 and 10. And here we have his confession of trust. My enemies are trying to make me doubt in God and his deliverances. And perhaps in my own mind, I'm beginning to succumb to those attacks and begin to doubt the fact that God would deliver me. But he says, yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Lord, I have trusted you, relied on you, cried out to you, believed in you my whole life. I know that you will be here now with me. I know, Lord, that this Emmanuel promise, God with us, is true in this case. I will not listen to my attackers. I will not listen to my own mind. I will trust in 
Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has been my God my whole life. He has been my trust my whole life. And the psalmist begins now to move away from this short-sighted perspective of his problems to a God view. Because he has now moved towards looking towards God for his deliverances, he gives a very long petition, verses 11 through 21. 11 through 21 is his petition. Uh, most of the verses here deal with his situation of suffering. But the real essence of these verses is his prayer for deliverance. Take a look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Jump down to verse 19 and we'll see how this is reiterated. But thou, o Lord, be not far off, O thou my help. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my sword from the deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. See this section of the psalm, the psalmist is moving towards a God perspective. I have confidence in God. Irrespective of my experience and emotions of forsakenness irrespective of the depth of my situation i do trust him i know that from my own life he has been with me through the in the past i know in the spiritual forefathers he has been with them on the basis of my confidence in him my trust in him i give my petition now these verses are verses that you'll find in the new testament that are very often um Interpreted and understood with reference to Christ's suffering on the cross. We have to take a look at these verses, however, also in David's own experience. That is, when David says in verse 14, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me. This must come out of David's own experience. What is, and this is the point I want to make in this little section here, 11 through 21. What is, with respect to David, hyperbole is literal in the New Testament and Christ's work on the cross. That is, David, out of the despair of his situation, describes his situation and his suffering and his trials with grandiose words. That is, in verse 15, his strength was dried up. His tongue did cleave to his jaws, and God did, in a sense, in his desperation, he felt like this was the end of his life. Thou dost lay me in the dust of death. Lord, all I can see is it's over for me. I am history. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And in the New Testament, this is understood with reference to the piercing of the hands and feet of Christ. And yet, in David's situation, this must have reference. And I think what's going on here is he, uh, what a dog does to his prey, he bites and snips at his prey to see if it's dead or not. And so what David is saying here, these dogs have surrounded me, they're all around me, I'm encircled, there's no way out, and they're taking little bites and snips at me to see if I'm still alive and kicking. He says, I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me. Perhaps David was emaciated from his runnings away from his enemies and not having a chance to eat. In Christ's in Christ work on the cross, 
This also has reference. And finally, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, my clothing, they cast lots. That is, this must have reference to David, ideally. In Christ, it works out literally. But the whole point of this paragraph here is for David to give his petitions to God because of the immense sufferings that he is undergoing. And the reason why there's so much, so many verses about the sufferings here is to stress the fact that David is on his last legs. He's saying, God, get me out of here. It's intense. So verse 11, be not far from me. Trouble is near. Verse 19, be not far off, O thou my help. Hasten to my assistance. Now, between verse 21 and verse 22, there's a white spot in your Bible. An implication here because throughout the rest of this psalm, verses 22 through 31, David is now praising God and thanking God. And in between these verses, 21 and 22, David understands this message from God. And the message from God is, I will deliver you. I will save you. I will be with you. Because in verse 22 through 24, David gives us words of confidence of his deliverance. Up to verse 21, David is, first of all, looking only at his circumstances, seeing how forsaken he is. He recognizes and confesses his trust in God, and that allows him to move on to petition and prayer for help. And in the white space between 21 and 22, David receives the message from God, David, I will be with you. Or Christian, I will be with you. Christian, I will hear you. Christian, I will deliver you. And in verses 22 through 24, David gives us words of confidence in his deliverance. Now, I have to say this here. David is not yet delivered. He is still in the midst of his trial and sufferings. I should also add that I think that these, this whole psalm was on the mind of our Lord as he hung there on the cross. Yes, he did say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he also said at the very end, it is finished. And that's a statement of confidence that his work is done, that God will now move him to the glories to follow. So what are, what are David's confidences in his deliverance? Verses 22 through 24. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, that's, that's us. Praise him, all you seed or descendants of Jacob. Glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel or descendants of Israel. Now, why? Why do we praise God here? Why is David in the midst of his sufferings praising God? For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Now, I want to point this out to you. He doesn't say this. He does not say me in verse 24. He does not say, neither has he hidden his face from me. But when, nor does he say, when I cried. What David is doing here is he's presenting an ideal picture of the afflicted. This is an ideal generic statement. What is true for David 
for David's spiritual forefathers, for Jesus Christ, and for us who are in Christ. We praise God in the midst of our sufferings because of the confidence that we have of deliverance. And our statement of confidence is verse 24. He has not despised. This is a reality. He has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. That's any afflicted in Christ. Anybody. He has not hidden his face from him. When he cried to him for help, he heard. God has heard me. He will deliver me. He will get me out of this mess. I have confidence. The last part of the psalm, verses 25 through 31, deals with the praise that results from God's deliverance. And we're right back where we started. In verse 3 of the psalm, the psalmist says, Thou art holy, you are thrown upon the praises of Israel. And the praises of Israel are God's great works of deliverance. And in verse 25, we've come, 25 through 31, we've come full circle. 25 through 31 are the praises that come as a result of God delivering the afflicted one. Now, when we read this last part here, I want you to see how David explodes his idea, his concept of the consequences of God's deliverance. It's really remarkable. So let me read it, and I'll make a few comments about this. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted, that's you and me and Christ and David and everybody else, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. <clears throat> all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before thee. Now, understand, David is in the midst of his situation, whatever it may be. Too generic and ideal to figure out the details. He trusts God that God's going to deliver him. And David says this. When people see that you have delivered me. Verse 27 says the whole earth will praise you. Do you see how David has now exploded his concept of this psalm? Now this psalm. The only way that we can read this verse is to think about the sufferings of the Messiah. The son of David. Who as a result of being delivered by God from death and his resurrection. When the world sees that God has saved and delivered his anointed. The son of David from death by resurrection. The ends of the earth will worship God himself. The consequences for God delivering Christ is universal salvation. Verse 28. The kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. When the world sees the deliverance of God and his anointed, the kingdom comes over the whole entire globe. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. That's all the rich folks. All those who go down to the dust, that's all the poor folks, will bow before him. Both the rich and the poor will see the deliverance of God with respect to his anointed, and they will worship and bow down. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. This act of deliverance and salvation will be told to generation after generation after generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has finished it. So the idea of this last part of the psalm is that when folks see God deliver the afflicted one, they praise him. 
When your friends and family or your Christian brothers and sisters see God deliver you out of a suffering or trial, they thank God. You thank God. And our gospel message is this to the world. Christ has suffered on our behalf. God has raised him to glory. God has delivered Christ from death for our salvation and justification. And our message to the nations is see the deliverance of God in the Savior. And our message is come worship and bow down this same God, this Holy One of Israel. Okay, let me make some endo-messianic applications, all right? Let me make some applications for us in Christ. First of all, as we cry out to God and seek him, we move from viewing the sufferings alone to view the deliverer from those sufferings. We move from despair to confidence, to praise and the key idea here is we move from despair to confidence and praise in the midst of our sufferings because we have confidence in the God who has delivered his people from Abraham to yourselves. Second of all, from this psalm, I get a very general definition of suffering. Suffering is this, anything in your life that causes you to cry out to God for help. Anything in your life that causes you to cry out to God for help. Please don't think that just because we are not living under a, a harsh regime that does not allow Christian freedoms, that you do not suffer. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you share in the sufferings of Christ. Your experience, your in Christ experience, is that of participating, sharing the sufferings of our Lord. It is part of our Christian existence. And in these areas of suffering that I think are found in the scriptures, one is physical sufferings. That is sicknesses, infirmities, handicaps that we may have. That is, these are sufferings that are part of our experience of living that, call up, that cause us to cry out to God for help. We have interpersonal sufferings, maybe attacks from unbelievers who attack our faith and who attack our trust in God. Why do you trust in God? He's not going to deliver you. How can he deliver you? Fleshly sufferings. Paul talks about our struggle and fight with our flesh. When we struggle and fight with our flesh, we cry out to God for help. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? God, get me away from this fleshy stuff that I fight day and night with that cause me and, and, and hassle me in my desire and zeal to serve you. Fleshly sufferings. We fight daily with the flesh that says no to God when deep down in our being of beings, the real you, all you want to do is say yes to God. Fleshly sufferings. And in our sufferings with our flesh, we cry out to God, God, hear my prayer, deliver me, help me from this struggle and fight I have with my flesh. And the last area of suffering that I think we see in the scriptures are circumstantial sufferings. Lack, lack of things, lack of, well, take the children of Israel, they lacked food, God gave them manna, they lacked water, God gave them, God gave them water from a rock. 
lacking of money, lacking of jobs, uh, lacking of relationships, lack of certainty of the future, lack of wisdom in a situation where you have no wisdom. We have a little two-year-old in our home who thinks he's four, and um, he thinks he's a real big guy. And our four-year-old, we had a very easy time disciplining him. Um, he was a pretty easy guy. We tell him no, um, he disobeys, we give him a spanking one time, that's it. Case settled. My two-year-old, who thinks he's four, um, doesn't like to respond to um, the rod of discipline so easily. So we tell him to stay in his crib, and he gets out, crawls out of his crib, down the floor, comes out with a big smile on his face. So uh, we uh, use the rod of discipline, put him back in his crib. Comes out again, but this time he doesn't come out of the room, he stays inside his room. But you know, we hear this thump on the floor because he just falls down to the ground. and uh, Go into the room and apply the rod of discipline. Third time, back in his crib, we hear this again. Now he's lying on the floor next to his crib, thinking that I'm going to stay close to my crib, but I'm not going to go out of my room. I'm not going to go away from my crib. I'll stay right there. So we apply the rod of discipline. Finally, the little critter the, uh, gets the idea. And uh, my wife, especially since she deals with the little monkey all day long, this is, a, this, is, this is an area in which, um, this is what I call a circumstantial suffering. We did a, we did a uh, our wisdom application with regard to our first son was fine, I and mean, it worked great. But now we are in a situation where we don't have the answers that we want. Lack of wisdom. So we cry out to God, God, we have this little individual in our home for a very short period of time. Give us wisdom that we do things right for him. That he can grow up to be a wise man, a good daddy, and a hard worker. And a, a man who loves God and loves his wife and loves his children. Circumstantial suffering. It's a lack. Any lack in your life. Financial lack. Job. Relationships. Lack of a future. Wisdom. What I'd like to do in the, to close is to say a word of prayer. You know the lacks in your life, the sufferings that you undergo. You know uh, better than anyone else what that situation is in your life that causes you to cry out to God for help. God, give me help. Get me out of this. You may be in a situation right now where all you can see is the circumstance and you feel the forsakenness of God even as this psalmist did. All he saw was before his eyes the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations, the sufferings. And, he's, and you may be thinking, God, you're way far off. You're way far away. You've been there before for me. I know you've been there for the folks in the scriptures. But right now you seem really far, far away. And what I'd like to do is to give you an opportunity at least to begin moving towards verses 22 through 31 in this psalm. Moving towards 
confidence in the midst of your suffering, moving towards assurance of God in the midst of your trial and tribulation, moving towards praising God in the midst of those sufferings. So what I'd like to do is to give you an opportunity to spend a moment or two quietly praying to the Lord. And what I'd like for you to do is to bring these areas in your life that uh, you're, you want to cry out to him. And that I will close with a word of prayer and uh, then you will be dismissed. So I invite you to bow your head for a brief moment of silent prayer. And please cry out to God.